Hey, if you have your Bibles with you, follow me over to Romans chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8 today. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And the Bible says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our father according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted, as if a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this privilege again that you've given us, the opportunity we have to be in your house, to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, but more importantly, Lord, to honor you, to ascribe to you the worth that you're due, and to hear from the truth of your word. And so this morning we're asking, Lord, that you would speak to us through the person of the Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into all truth that you would help us to understand clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, Father, you you would prick the hearts of those who are lost, and, Lord, you would challenge the hearts of those who are saved, that we would be obedient to you in every aspect of our life, and that we would be champions of the gospel of Christ because it's the only hope this world has. And so, Lord, as always, use this vessel, weak as it is, to bring glory and honor to your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, I just as we start, you know, it's, it's Father's Day, and many times people come to church on Father's Day, and they, they expect a, a booming Father's Day sermon. Well, in my opinion, the, the most important thing that fathers can hear is that there's a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ, and you must believe in him. And when you believe in him, God will change you. God will transform you. He will impute his righteousness to you, and that will impact the way you love your wife and the way you love and guide your children. It will impact the way you are at work as an employee. It will impact the way you function as an employer. It permeates every aspect of your life, and that's what will change this world. And so that's why we are still in Romans chapter 4 this day. I get it. The greatest weapon that the spirit of this age is using in society today is this weapon against the nuclear family. Satan and all his minions are using every tool they can to destroy the family in this nation and in this world. And the latest picture of that or the latest demonstration of that is the T in the alphabet mafia. 
Transgenderism has risen to the forefront. It's not enough to try to destroy the concept of, of marriage and, and, and sexuality as it relates to a man and a woman. Now, we see the world trying to destroy the very concept of manhood and womanhood. Trying to eradicate from our vocabulary the concept of what it means to be man and what it means to be woman. And that's the greatest downfall of this nation and this world. And the only hope for that is for God to redeem the people who are propagating this debauchery in the world. And the only way I know to do that is to share with you the principles of God's word that point to the right understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're in the book of Romans, because we've got to understand the gospel rightly if we're going to share the gospel with a lost and dying world. And if we hope for change, then we have to be a people who are centered on Christ and a people centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the only thing that's going to bring change to your life, to my life, to your family, to my family, and ultimately to our community, to our state, to our nation, and to our world. If we want to see change, it comes when we get serious about understanding the gospel. And so Paul has been helping us to do that. In the book of Romans, he's just told us in Romans chapter 3 that there is a righteousness that has been demonstrated by God through the obedience of Jesus Christ who became, as chapter 3 tells us, a propitiation for our sinfulness. It's a righteousness through Christ that is apart from the works of the law. It is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And Paul now turns his attention in chapter 4 to give us a definitive illustration of what this faith alone, apart from works, looks like. And more than that, he shares with us by, he shares this illustration with us by way of demolishing the strongest point of argument that the Jews thought they had in a righteousness based on works in the person of Abraham. So Paul goes to the heart of their argument for righteousness by works in Abraham, and he begins to dismantle that argument and show to you and me as he showed show, as he showed to these roman this roman audience he shows to us what this faith looks like and what the implications of this faith are in our life and so today as we look at this passage just so you'll kind of know the broader picture of where we're going in chapter 4 which all of chapter 4 is this illustration that Paul's using uh, Abraham in to demonstrate to us the importance and the significance of this righteousness by faith apart from the works of the law. It, it kind of breaks up in the four sections. Some people break it up into three sections, but I, I think four sections speaks to it in a very appropriate way. First, the section we're in this morning, verses one through eight, really deal with the aspect of justification by works or by faith, not by works. 
Paul's going to drive home that point in verses 1 through 8. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be in verses 9 through 16, which again points to this idea that salvation, justification is through grace and not the law. And again, these dovetail, okay? They, 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 they hinge upon the other, right? They're very similar. But Paul's going to drive home this, this point in next week's sermon. Then the third week will be in, in Romans uh, chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. And it talks about the nature of this saving faith in, in some detail. And then in verses 23 through 25, Paul gives us some implications of this faith that Abraham had. What are the implications to our life? And again, we'll get implications along the way. That's kind of a broad picture of where we're going in chapter four. Today, though, as we unpack this idea of justification by faith, not by works, we're going to look at it in in three main headings. One, the means of justification, we've already said, by faith alone. Then the manner of this justification comes by God's grace alone. And then the merits of justification are the divine blessings of justification that we see in the blessed man in verses 7 and 8 in in Romans chapter 4. So let's look at the first part of this um, chapter, verses 1 through 3. Talk about the means of justification, which is by faith alone. And that's what... Paul, why Paul begins the way he does. He, he wants to challenge the Jewish understanding, the Jewish tradition of faith or righteousness by works. And their prime example is Abraham. And that's why he begins what way he begins in this, uh, in this section of scripture. What then shall we say, uh, say was gained by Abraham? Our father, according to to the flesh. Now, Paul, again, that's euphemistic of saying, I'm talking about a Jew. He's a Jew just like we are. What did he gain in, uh, in his life by works or by the flesh? Verse two, he goes on to say, for Abraham was justified by works. He, if he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And that's the important phrase in Paul's understanding of this topic. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So first we've got to understand a little bit about the Jewish tradition about Abraham. And we'll talk about it in great detail, but just to give you a couple uh, quotes that'll help you understand how the Jews viewed Abraham and his righteousness by works. There are even some who say, and, and again, I didn't vet this out to make sure it was true or not, but there are some who claim that Jews at, at one time believed that Abraham even began to be obedient to God by the time he was three years old. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it lends to the idea of their understanding that faith or that righteousness comes by works or obedience. It comes by faithfulness rather than by faith in the person of God or in the promise of God. Okay, there's one extra biblical book, uh, First Maccabees. Uh, and again, these are not in the in the at least the Protestant canon of Scripture because a lot of these were pseudepigraphal. In other words, they, they don't know who wrote them. 
uh, and some of them are really fanciful. But I think sometimes you can glean some thoughts and ideologies from some of these books about what the culture was thinking, and in particular, in this case, the culture of Judaism. This is uh, one passage that deals with the person Abraham. It says, Was not Abraham found faithful in testing, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So you see, the idea for the Jew is that Abraham's righteousness would be because of his obedience, not because of his faith in the person of God or in the promise of God. It was his obedience in particular here, probably talking about his obedience in sacrificing or being the willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Then there's an, uh, a prayer, uh, a so-called prayer of Manasseh, again, that gives us a little taste of how the Jews thought about Abraham, not only Abraham, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Listen to how this uh, prayer goes. It says, Therefore, thou, O Lord, God of the righteous, has not appointed repentance for the righteous. For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance for me, who am a, sin, a sinner. So do you see the idea of how Jesus thought about Abraham? It's almost as if he, was, he had a, a, a sinlessness as part of his character, that he never sinned against a holy, righteous God. Well, we know from Scripture that that's just not the case, is it? Where did we find Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? in a pagan land among a pagan people with his father, right? In Ur, and then he went to Haran, uh, headed toward, toward the uh, land of Canaan. But they were in a pagan culture. They were worshiping pagan gods. So just by virtue of that fact, they were sinful and in rebellion against the God of creation. There was nothing inherently uh, righteous about Abraham himself that caused God to reach down and pick him to uh, inaugurate this uh, Jewish nation. Abraham was a sinner just like you are a sinner and just like I am a sinner. And Paul begins to abolish this idea. He's already told us in chapter 3 that what they believe is not true, right? In chapter 3, he establishes that Abraham was in rebellion against God, just like all of humanity. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, was Abraham, technically, he was, the, I guess, the first Jew uh, by choice. God chose him and began this Jewish nation through him. But he says, No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So Abraham, Paul is implying, is just as sinful as any Gentile who would have been in this world. So he's going to break down this logical argument. So that's the next thing. He begins to attack their logic because here's, here's the logic of the Jews. If you wanted to put it into a logical syllogism, it would be something like this. Premise one would be, if a man is justified by works, then he has something to boast about. Well, that's kind of what Paul says in the verse, first verse, right? Then the second premise would be this from the Jewish perspective. Abraham was justified by works because of his faithfulness, his obedience. He was justified. And then their conclusion would be, therefore, Abraham has the right to boast because of his justification. Well, Paul's going to dismantle that argument throughout this passage today. And so the first thing he would say in rebuttal to premise number one would be, hey, you can say that. 
If a person is justified by his works, then he does have a right to boast. You can make that, that, that can be a valid claim. But Paul implies the problem is with premise number two. Premise number two is to claim that Abraham was justified by works rather than by faith. And Paul, that's, that's where that clause comes in at the end of verse two. He says, but not before God. The reality is you may think that Abraham was justified by his works and you may think he has a right to boast, but you are sadly mistaken. Abraham has no right to boast because he was not justified by works. He was rather justified by faith. So premise number two of your argument is false. Therefore, your conclusion is false. Abraham has no right to boast because he didn't justify himself. God in his sovereign grace and his mercy through faith in his promise brought justification and righteousness to Abraham. And so what does Paul do to validate his argument? He does what we all should do to validate any argument that we have. Paul goes to scripture. He appeals to God's word to validate his argument. And he quotes in uh, verse three, Genesis chapter 15 and verse six. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 is almost word for word for what you have in your text there. It leaves out Abraham's name because Abraham was mentioned earlier in Genesis chapter 3, verse uh, chapter 3, or chapter 15. Uh, and so the Lord says, and he, meaning Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteous. Now, we don't have time to go back and look at it, but I encourage you to, to write down Genesis chapter 12. And go back and read the occasion of God's call of Abraham. And Paul, and, and Paul quoting what God says about Abraham in, chapter, in Genesis chapter 3 is dead on. Because where was Abraham? We've already mentioned. He was in a pagan land doing his pagan thing, right? He was 70 years old. He lived most of his most of his life in this pagan land, in this pagan culture, worshiping pagan gods. And God, the one true and living God, reached down and called to Abraham and told him that, hey, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you the inheritance of the land of Canaan. And what did Abraham do? He believed that God was true to his word. And he followed God. He left everything that he knew, everything that he was comfortable with. He left his father. He left his culture. He left his friends. And he began to follow this God who came and spoke to him by faith and faith alone. He had never heard from this God before in this specific of a way. We know through creation, God has spoken, right? But this is specific revelation. God spoke to Abraham and called him out and he followed God. And that's why God can say he believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And what Paul's going to flesh out for us over this chapter, chapter four, that's the only way anyone is ever saved. Is by faith in the promise of God. In Abraham's case, the promise was yet to come. 
In our case, the promise has already been fulfilled in the person of Christ, right? So our faith is looking back on what Christ has accomplished and fulfilled. Abraham's faith was looking forward to what God had promised would take place. And so Paul appeals to the scripture to validate his argument. And there's a couple of implications that you and I need to glean from just this one fact that Paul appealed to scripture. One, scripture is sufficient to validate truth. You and I need to grab hold of that because far too often what we do in our lives is we try to weigh scripture against everything else that is in society, right? Don't, don't we do that? We try to weigh it against science or whatever our popular, our favorite popular book is that we read. We try to weigh scripture against all of those things. We, we turn what God intends for us to do on its head. God has called us to weigh everything in this world, what we hear, what we read, what we see, weigh all of that against the truth of scripture because scripture is sufficient to justify what is true. And you and I need to be people of the book and glean our truth from the book, God's word, the Bible. Secondly, Jewish theology was contrary to what scripture said. What they believed about Abraham was contrary to what the scripture said. And there's a lot of theology in this world today that claims to be from God that is contrary to what the Bible says. It becomes what man's opinion is. That's why it's so dangerous for you and for me to take one verse and make a doctrine of one verse. Greg Kokel, uh, he's an apologist. He says, a philosopher, he says, never read just one verse. And I agree with him. Never read just one verse. What is he saying? Read the Bible in context so that we can understand the full thought of what the author of Scripture is saying. That's why we go through the Bible the way we do on Sunday mornings. It's why we started doing what we do in Sunday school. Because we want to guard against the danger of what I call t-shirt theology or bumper sticker theology, right? We've all seen them. Nice, trite little phrases that we put on stickers or put on our t-shirts that we rip out of context and make them say what we want them to say. We must read Scripture in its context and in its entirety so we can understand the truth of what God is saying in the whole and not just twist it to make it say what we wanted to say for this particular moment in our life. And then the third implication of Paul's appeal to Scripture is this, that the Old Testament is still valid. You know why? Because what is Paul rooting his New Testament, quote, New Testament theology in? He's rooting his New Testament theology of faith apart from works in the Old Testament, right? And he is going back to the very beginning of the Jewish nation. And Paul says, this is God. This has been God's plan from the beginning. This is not something new. God, from the beginning of his redemptive work through the nation of Israel, has always been showing us that salvation has been by faith alone in the promise of God. And ultimately, that promise is fulfilled in the person Jesus Christ. So, contrary to what some popular 
pastors may say today, we cannot unhitch from the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the foundation of what we read in the New Testament. It is still relevant today, and we would not understand as much as we understand about the New Testament if we didn't have the Old Testament. And the New Testament does shine light on the Old Testament, but they are not in opposition to one another. The New Testament doesn't negate the Old Testament. The New Testament just expands on the revelation that God has always been telling us. So we need to be people of the entire book, the entire word of God. And so that leads to maybe a little aside. We could do almost a whole sermon on this one point. But underlying what Paul is saying in this first section of, of this text in verses 1 through 3 is a very important doctrine called the doctrine of imputation. And we see that doctrine in, in a phrase, but ultimately the root of it is in a single word. And it's really in that quote that Paul has from Genesis chapter 3, verses 15, uh, chapter 15, verses 6. And it's in verse 3 in our text today. For what does the scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. And here's the phrase where we find the, the allusion to this doctrine of imputation. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that word translated in the English counted. Some translation may have reckoned uh, in there or credited. Uh, something to that nature. It, it's the Greek word legizomai. Um, legizomai. And it has to do with the idea of accounting and taking uh, a particular um, asset from one account and putting that asset into another account in the strictest sense of the word. And so in, in the spiritual idea, as you can see in what God is doing, Abraham, the implication is, is a man who is not righteous in and of himself, but because of his faith in God, it causes God to act on Abraham's behalf. And in spite of his unrighteousness, because of his faith, God takes his own righteousness, the righteousness that we will learn of Jesus Christ, and he accredits that Righteousness, he reckons that righteousness to Abraham's account. That's the doctrine of imputation. Now, the doctrine of imputation has three aspects to it there is the imputation of original sin. In other words, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in particularly Adam. Adam, and we'll learn more about this as we go through Romans, Adam is what is considered our federal head. Now, we understand the term federal headship, even if we don't understand what, if we don't know what that word means, we understand the concept because it has to do with one person representing another person or group of persons. Well, we do that every two years, right? We elect people to go somewhere and stand in our place and vote on our behalf representing us. Well, Adam, as we'll learn in next uh, chapter chapter 5, stood in our place uh, as a human being and represented all of humanity. The sad part of that story is 
that when Adam sinned against God, his sin, his fall, as we'll learn in chapter 5 of Romans, as a matter of fact, 5 verse 12 tells us, this sin, this fall was imputed, reckoned to our account. Romans chapter 5 verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that man being Adam, and through sin, uh, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we suffer the consequences of Adam's rebellion. We are all deemed sinners before God because of Adam's rebellion. But it doesn't stop there. We continue to sin on our own behalf, right? And so we're sinners by two reasons. Because Adam fell and we are depraved, our nature is depraved, and we are in rebellion against God. But we continue to sin and stay in rebellion against a holy, righteous God. That's the first aspect of this doctrine of imputation. Adam's sin is imputed to us. The second aspect is that our sins, when it comes to redemption, our sins are imputed to Christ. So everything that is vile about us, everything that is rotten and sinful and rebellious about us against God is accredited to the account of Christ. That's what the cross is all about. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21, you need to read that whole chapter, but 5.21 summarizes what Paul is saying. He who knew no sin, meaning Christ, the Bible says, became sin for us. That's the imputation of our sin to the credit of Christ. The only innocent man in all of humanity. Everything that was vile and wretched about me and you was put on Jesus' account. That's why, that's what was happening on the cross. Jesus was bearing the weight and the guilt of my sin and your sin. And God the Father, in turn, was pouring out his wrath against your sin and my sin on his only son on the cross of Calvary. So Jesus bore my guilt and Jesus bore the punishment for my guilt on the cross of Calvary. My sin was imputed to Christ. So that if I, like Abraham, will believe in this promised one, Jesus Christ, and his finished and complete propitiatory work on my behalf, appeasing God's wrath, dealing with sin once and for all, if I will believe that he satisfied God's wrath and I will trust in him for my redemption, then God, in turn, will impute the righteousness of Christ to my account. That's the doctrine of imputation when it comes to redemption. Redemption, and that is a glorious doctrine. Because in myself, I have no righteousness. In myself, I have no hope. We, we talked about, I was listening to a debate on the way yesterday back home from, <coughs> excuse me, Augusta, Georgia. And it had to do with a, a, a Protestant who was debating a Catholic over the issue of whether or not a Christian can lose their salvation. And the point I want to get to is this, that the Protestant made this statement, and it's very true. If I could lose my salvation, I would lose my salvation. 
If my salvation is in any way dependent upon me, then I am in trouble. And so are you. Because I cannot be righteous enough in my own effort to make myself right before a holy God. Because I am a sinful, wretched person. God must work on my behalf. God God has to intervene. If he doesn't, I am doomed and you are doomed. And God did intervene in the person of Christ. And so I can stand before a holy, righteous God with Christ's righteousness being imputed to me because I place my faith in him. And the God can deem me justified and holy and righteous. That's the only way that I can stand in the judgment that is to come. It's the only way you can stand in the judgment that is to come. That's why Abraham could never have been justified and made righteous by works. How many times do we read about sinfulness in the life of Abraham after God called him? Over and over again, right? He lies. You and I lie. You and I cheat. You and I steal. All of us have broken God's law. So we must throw ourselves on the grace of God. We must throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And that leads to verses 4 and 5, this manner of justification. It's by grace alone. It's because God in his grace afforded me an opportunity in spite of my sinfulness, in spite of my rebellion, to be made right by him through faith in Jesus Christ. (laughs) Excuse me. Paul deals with this by demonstrating the difference between works and grace. And the word grace is found in a hidden way in this particular passage. Uh, Paul says in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. That's where the word grace comes in. But as due. And so it's like you and I, when we go to work, for a company or individual or whatever it is, we, in essence, negotiate a contract, don't we? We say that, hey, I will work for you for X amount of dollars and I will provide for you X amount of hours of labor, right? And I will do my dead level best to give you the quality that you demand of the labor that I am producing and the product that I'm producing. And you will, in turn, give me the agreed upon amount as my wage. And so if we work for 40, 50, 60 hours a week, whatever it is you work every week, and you go to your boss man at the end of the week or end of every two weeks or the end of the month, however you get paid, and he says to you, here is my gift to you. You say, well, hold on just a minute. That's more than a gift, buddy, because I work my butt off for that uh, wage that I'm about to put in my banking account, right? That's not a gift. That's an agreed-upon wage for a contract that you and I have made. And there's a difference between that and a gift. And that's what Paul is trying to bear out in this passage. And you know what? There is a wage for the works that you and I do because our works are sinful works, right? Right? Apart from the redeeming work of Christ in our life, our works are sinful works. There's none who does good. Isn't that what Paul told us in Romans chapter 3? And then he reminds us of what the wages of of our sin. Romans 6, 23, we'll get there eventually. For the wages of sin is what? Death, right? That is what we deserve. That is what we should be 
paid because of our wage and our works. Sin leads to death. And we'll learn more about that in chapter 5. But the second part of that verse, hallelujah for it, right? The second part of that verse parallels what Paul is saying in verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him. And you ought to circle this in your Bible. Who justifies the ungodly. Guess what? That's the only kind of people there are to justify. There are no other kind of people. Every one of us are ungodly. So praise God that he justifies the ungodly. Because I need that. And you need that. If we believe in him who justifies the ungodly, then he, by his grace, counts that faith as righteousness. He gives us the gift of righteousness because of our faith in him. And he pardons us from our guilt. That's what the last part of verses 23 says in Romans chapter 6. For the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for that. And just to validate what Paul is saying, salvation is a free gift. It's ultimately a gift of God in every respect. I have nothing whatsoever to do with my salvation. God had everything to do with my salvation. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You all know this verse. For by grace you have been saved. That's that gift. That's part of that mercy that God shows. It's because of his grace. And don't miss the verb tense there. You have been saved. It's a done deal for those who believe in Christ. And then he says, through faith. And then the next sentence says, and this is not your own doing, or this is not of yourself. Well, what is preceding that? Both grace and faith. Those are the work of God in our life. That's what regeneration is all about. I'm in rebellion against God, completely and utterly depraved, bent on doing things my way, running from God with no intentions of coming to faith in Christ until God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, opened my eyes to the fact of my depravity and instills within me the ability to believe in him. By grace, through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Paul's going to bear that out in a very magnificent way in Romans chapter 9 when we get there. So be ready for that. Well, it's 1130. I still have one point left. But I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to stop right here in honor of Father's Day. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> and we'll pick up in verses 6 through 8. So we, we may have five sermons in, in chapter 4, if that's all right. But we'll at least pick up in verses 6 through 8 when we get and we'll talk, uh, get back next week. And we'll talk about the merits of this justification because we cannot leave off this idea of the blessed man. Because you want to be this blessed man that is in Romans 7 and 8. If you're not this blessed man, then you're in trouble. You are doomed. 
And God has made a way for you to take part of this blessing that he reveals in this chapter. So the question, question I guess, before us today is, what are you banking your righteousness on? What are you banking your eternity on? Are you still trying to work your way to righteousness? Are you still trying to find favor with God by being good? Well, I'm here to tell you, if that's where you're banking your standing with God on, you have already failed. Because the Bible has said it very plainly. There is none good. No, not one. Even Jesus said there's only one good. He's God. There's no human being that can be good enough to merit the favor of God. That's why Paul, when we get into Romans 5, we'll see it. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You will never be good enough. You can never accomplish enough because even the best of your righteousness, as the prophet Isaiah says, is as filthy rags before a holy, righteous God. You must, you must place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He must be the object of your faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. That's how you're saved. And if you're trying to do it any other way, you have missed the mark. And you are headed for hell. But you don't have to leave this place today like that. Because God has revealed to you that there is a righteousness that can be found apart from works in faith in Jesus Christ. Will you believe? Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. And my prayer is today, Father, that those who are believers that, Lord, we will begin to understand the depth and the, and the length and the width of the truth of the gospel of Christ. We'll begin to understand the significance of what you have done on our behalf and the need for us to share this hope with a lost and dying world. And Lord, for those who may be lost among us today or whoever hears this on Facebook or, or on YouTube or, or on a podcast, Father, that you would prick the hearts of lost humanity and they will see their need to throw themselves at the feet of Christ and place their faith in the finished redeeming work of Christ. Father, you have your way and your will in Jesus' name.